Jewish Latin Princess, episode 34, Harriet Lerner, author of Why Won't You Apologize? You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess podcast by Yael. Every week, get your dose of inspiration from the world's most uniquely talented Jewish women and from Yael herself. Seeking profound and practical ways to live a joyful, richer Jewish life? Welcome to Jewish Latin Princess podcast. And now, Jewish lifestyle expert and bilingual blogger at jewishlatinprincess.com, your host, Yael. Have you ever heard an unapology? One of those apologies that left you wondering, what was that? How do you deal with the unapologetic offender? And what if you are the offender? Yikes. How good are you at apologizing? You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess, everyone. Welcome back. I don't know that I'm so good at apologizing, honestly. I recently had to apologize to my really good friend. It was all my fault. It really was. Apologizing is hard, and being on the receiving end of an unapology is also hard. Seriously, can't the person take responsibility for what they've done? To help us navigate this, I have the wonderful Harriet Lerner on the show. Harriet is a clinical psychologist and one of our nation's most respected voices on the psychology of women and family relationships. She is the author of numerous scholarly articles and 12 books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Dance of Anger. You know The Dance of Anger, right? You've read it? The Dance of Anger has sold several million copies with over 25 foreign editions. And of course, she has a wonderful TEDx talk, a Why Won't He Apologize? And her latest book is Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. And that's what we talk about today. And what about forgiveness? As Jews, we are taught in the Torah to forgive those who've harmed us and who genuinely apologize. And of course, there are rules as to what a genuine apology is. Now, Harriet thinks the topic of forgiveness is not black and white. There might be degrees to forgiveness. And she's also seen throughout her work that the pressure of having to forgive can be quite harmful. I do want to apologize ahead of time because the quality of the audio today is not as usual. We had a few issues, so I'm sorry about that. But here we go, ladies. Here's Harriet Lerner. Harriet Lerner, welcome to Jewish Latin Princess. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so happy to get to talk to you. You are such a wonderful writer. I want to set the stage a little bit for readers. You're the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Dance of Anger, a fabulous book, which has sold several million copies and 25 foreign editions. You've really become one of America's most respected voices on the psychology of women, family relationships, and now you've published this beautiful book, um, Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. Tell us, uh, before I even get to uh, the apology and the art of the apology, all these, all this good stuff that you teach us here, what was the impetus for this work? What Was there a personal reason? Why did you want to write about the apology? Well, we're all connected. We all screw up. We all unwittingly hurt other people, just as we're hurt by them. So the need to give and receive apologies is with us until our very last breath. And when done well, the apology is deeply healing. And when the apology is absent or we give a bad apology, it compromises the relationship and sometimes it even ends a relationship. So it's a really important subject. Um To be honest about it, what got me to actually sit down at the computer and start writing, because I had been studying um, this subject for a long time, is I received a really bad apology. You know, one of those blame-reversing, sleazy, obfuscating apologies that, um, you know, just really stayed with me. And it's funny what motivates a person to sit down and and write, but that's what got me it was this was this from family related or work related it was actually work related and I actually um, I actually tell the story in the beginning of the book you know a writer's 
revenge. But it, it, it was the work-related thing. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The truth is, it's such a necessary tool to have healthy relationships. We're always going to mess up. And unless we master this art, we might end up um, ruining a lot of relationships and, you know, having them end all together. Um, so, so it's definitely very, very necessary. So now that we've said it, we've, we've, we all need to know how to do it and we've all messed up in this area. How, how, what are some ways in which we mess up the apology? Cause I think, I think sometimes we don't even realize how we're messing it up. What are those some typical ways that we could mess it up? And we all mess it up because we're wired for defensiveness. And um, it's just so easy to slip into a bad apology. So the most common ways that we mess it up, well, first I would say with the word but. Um, I'm sorry that I forgot to call you, but I was loaded down with work. Or I'm sorry that um, sorry that I yelled at you and I was so rude to you when we were trying to leave the house, but you were taking forever to get ready. It doesn't matter if what you say after the but is true. The but makes your apology false. And the word but almost always signals um, a rationalization, an excuse, a criticism. So rule number one, get your butt out of your apology. And actually the same with the word if. You know, I'm sorry if I hurt you. I'm sorry. There's no accountability there. So these little words like but and if will undo the sincerity of your apology. And then the second way that we muck up an apology is we focus on the other person's reaction rather than our own behavior. So we say something like, I'm sorry that you were upset and angry when I corrected your stories at the party. And again, there's no accountability there when we're focusing on the other person's feelings. A real apology would say, I'm sorry that I corrected your stories at the party. You told me that you don't like that. I was wrong, and I won't do it again. So finally, I mean, there are actually a lot of ways we muck it up, but the other really important way is that we use the apology as a quick way to get out of a conversation because we don't want to listen anymore. So, for example, someone in my consulting room, um, a man said to his wife, I told you. 20 times that I'm sorry about the affair. Why do you keep bringing it up? Well, um, you know, there are certain kinds of betrayals and harm that a real apology means that we sit on the hot seat and listen to the anger and pain of the hurt party for as long as it takes. So those are a couple of, a few ways that we muck it up. And I want to tell you, everything in life is divine providence. This morning, to tell you the truth, I woke up to a text from a friend of mine, my dear, dear friend. I mean, we've been friends forever, you know, like a sister, right? She lives in the other side Uh of the country. And I know I'm having this conversation with you today, (laughs) the author of Why Won't You Apologize? And I got a text from my friend, deeply hurt, rightfully so, saying, I can't believe you didn't call me or acknowledge my daughter's bat mitzvah. And you know what? She's right. She's totally right. Uh I had had Uh a list of excuses I could give her, all those, but I had a crazy week and I... My husband's going through this and my kids through that. But you know what? I can't say that because the truth is she's right. And the only thing I could say is I am so sorry. You are right. I messed up. Like I, I, what else could I have said? I don't, I don't, but I, for sure I did not do the but maybe because I've read your book and because I know that that would not be welcome because there's no excuse. I messed it up. You know, even if I had a million things to do, she's right to be hurt. Right. Um, Right, and and that's a wonderful example, and the good apology is often very short, because the more we um, go on and on, the more we are likely to make excuses, which you didn't do. You didn't say, you know, I am so sorry, and I was just 
crazy and overloaded with work, you know, during this whole time. So that's a great example of giving an apology where you're showing that you care about the relationship and you you accept responsibility and there's no hint of evasion or excuse making and so good for you. You get an eight plus. But I guess do you still have this little like hurt in your the pit of your stomach, like you know you messed up and you hope that the other party's gonna accept your apology and you know Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but let's move on to you mentioned you mentioned the couple who he you know, he keep saying they, they talked about the affair and, you know, the degrees of, of, of hurt, I guess. I guess my question is being late to an appointment or, you know, not returning something on time or even not making that phone call that really was very meaningful to the other party and you forgot to make is not as it doesn't fall in the same degree of, you know, having an affair or, you know, the damage may be it's not the gravity of the sin, quote unquote, is not the same. So what does a good apology require of us say for a small offense versus a larger hurt or betrayal? There must be different degrees here of what we're working with, right? Absolutely. And it's easiest to apologize for a small thing. Like if you spill red wine on your friend's carpet, I mean, you're naturally going to say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Let me help you clean it up. I'd like to, you know, let me pay the cleaning bill. And that's very easy. But when it's something serious, when it's an affair or it's an abandonment or let's say someone in our family confronts us with it's just something we did really wrong, even if it's 10 years ago or 30 years ago. It requires more of us. And one of the things that it requires when it's a big hurt or a big harm is it requires that we really listen because it's not the words I'm sorry that heals the injury. The hurt party wants us to really get it. They want us to validate and care about their feelings. And they want us to carry some of the pain that we've caused them to feel. So an apology for a big thing is basically communicating, yes, I get it. I screwed up. I was wrong. Your feelings make sense. I want you to know that I'm not going to do this again. I want you to know that this conversation will not slip out of my head. And that may require us to sit on the hot seat and listen for a whole number of times. Because no apology will have meaning if we haven't listened carefully to the hurt party's anger and pain. And that is so difficult to do because often the hurt party who's confronting us, they're intense, there may be exaggerations, there may be distortions. We want to bring up their crime sheet because we think they're 51% to blame. And it is so difficult. It requires so much courage and intention to listen, not for what we don't agree with, you know, so we can climb up on our high horse and make our case, but to really listen for the essence of what that person needs us to get and to save our criticisms and our differences for another conversation. Um, that's really very heroic to be able to do that. Yeah, sitting in the hot seat can be a tough one. You know, you just reminded me that in Jewish law, the, the Rambam, again, not coincidentally, it happens to be that this this morning, my son was mentioning that this week's teaching of, of Rambam, the Rambam codified the Mishneh Torah. So it, it's a big book where it just breaks up all the different um, commandments and observances from the Torah. And it talks about the art of of repentance and forgiveness and asking for apologies and it does say there that when it's when we're talking about thing relationships between man and man 
we should apologize and we should seek forgiveness from the other party and even try several times. Do you think asking for, should we ask for forgiveness? Should we say, you know, I really want you to forgive forgive me? Or is that almost like dismissing the other person or reaching a line that they're not ready maybe yet for? Like, how do we, how do we manage that? How do we manage the listen and the validating with straight out asking to be forgiven? Maybe they, maybe they're not ready for that yet. Maybe we're pushing too much. Exactly. You know, the hardest chapter in Why Won't You Apologize for Me to Write was a chapter called You Need to Forgive and Other Lies That Hurt You. And it's basically a chapter for the harmed party, for the hurt party. And it says something very important, which is that you do not need to forgive someone who is not sorry who doesn't care about your feelings, um, who is never going to get it, who's not going to listen. If you're the hurt party, you do not need to forgive an unapologetic offender. However, you do need to let go of the corrosive aspects of anger and bitterness that keep you stuck. And forgiveness is only one path um, for letting go. I actually do not believe that if you've apologized to someone that you should ask for forgiveness. That may be true in some relationships. It may be true for some people. It certainly is not true for everyone. An apology is not a bargaining tool that we give to get something back like forgiveness. And when we request forgiveness or even demand it, we can cut short the process of the injured person and we can hurt them all over again. And this business of, you know, apologizing repeated times and asking for forgiveness the second time, the third time, it actually leads to a blame-reversing strategy You know, suddenly the hurt party is the bad guy because they're not forgiving and the wrongdoer feels self-righteous because blame has been shifted to the one who doesn't forgive. Um, And, you know, I'm a, a therapist, as you know, so I have worked with people over decades um, where one of the things that I see in the therapy process, for example, is that a parent, let's say, for example, a mother will say to her adult daughter, um, what you need to forgive your dad. You know, this happened a long time ago. Why don't you just let go and, and move forward? Many people begin, many people believe that forgiveness, like gratitude, is a universally healing emotion. I believe, by the way, that gratitude is a universally, it's a, it really is a healing emotion. But when we encourage forgiveness, we actually may leave the hurt party feeling alone and abandoned and betrayed all over again. When, when we say to someone who's been hurt or traumatized, you know, your dad did the best he could. This happened a long time ago. Why don't you forgive, move on, don't live in the past? I, I want to stress that these words, you know, well, why can't you forgive him? You need to forgive him. When they're said about an unapologetic offender, are the last words that a hurt person needs to hear. And cliches like, quote, you know, she did the best she could, or it is what it is, or this happened 40 years ago, it's not helpful. So it's one thing to tell someone you care about that you want them to find a way to protect themselves from feeling 
so angry and so stuck. You know, you don't want the one who hurt them to have such power over their life. Um, but it's another thing entirely to suggest that the harm party should simply absolve the wrongdoer and transcend their legitimate anger and pain by some act of will or grace. So forgiveness is a pretty complicated business, but that is my um, belief about it. That's what my research indicates. But, but yeah, it's important to stress that here, I guess what we're discussing is the unapologetic offender. Uh, exactly, exactly. Side, if we have a person who's crafted a genuine apology and has done and, and really feels remorse and feels bad for what they did and they do it in the right way, then, you know, as the hurt party, it's we, we should forgive, right? If we well, can, I mean, well, for the for the wrongdoer, let's take it from both sides because I'm very interested in both sides. I'm interested in the offending party, and I'm interested in the pain, the terrible pain of you know the one who is hurt. Um, for the offending party, the one who's done the harm, I would not suggest that even if you've given the best apology you know how to give even if you've listened as well as you know how to listen i still do not think um that it's useful to ask for forgiveness or particularly to demand forgiveness i think it's more useful to say i wish i could go back in time and and change what i did and my hope is that I can earn your trust or earn your forgiveness over time. And saying that you, your hope is that you can show by your new behavior that, that the person can feel safe and soothed in the relationship again is very different than having the attitude, well, I gave you a really good apology. You know, you better forgive me now. And for the, the hurt party, or the harmed party, um, you know, the extremes are never useful. Like I have um, my deceased Aunt Annie was someone who would never forgive no matter what. Like if you didn't thank, if you didn't send her a thank you note, you would be cut off forever. She was a person who practiced radical unforgiveness and um, that is not useful the other extreme that we all hold hands and sing kumbaya and forgive we can forgive anything is also when it's at the extreme not useful so for example um, I was working with someone and her father apologized for something very serious. He apologized for earlier sexual abuse that had occurred decades earlier. And it's very unusual that someone who commits that kind of violation will really own it. Um, and he wanted to know if she forgave him and she was able to say that she very much appreciated his courage in apologizing, that it made, it had a lot of meaning for her. It made a big difference. And she honored that. And she also said, you know, what happened left me, I had so much leftover anxiety from what happened. And it is still with me. And it's, it, it's just not a matter of forgiveness. I, it, I, I can't say I forgive you as if I 100% forgive you. I can say that I honor your apology and I'm very grateful that you show this kind of courage. 
So I don't think it's our job to tell other people to forgive. I don't think it's the job, you know, of a therapist, a religious leader, a parent to say to another person, you need to forgive or to say, you know, there's no peace or healing without forgiveness. And if you don't forgive, you're going to be, you know, mired down in bitterness and hate for the rest of your life. That's not, it's not true. And one Last thing, you know, there are many myths about forgiveness. And I find with people I work with, and I talk about this in the book, that it's important to recognize that forgiveness is not an all or nothing thing, like being pregnant. Like either you embrace the offender or you exile the offender, either you forgive him or you don't. The truth is, that you can forgive the other person 95% or 2% or anywhere in between. So, for example, I had a woman say to her husband, speaking of affairs, in my consulting room, and he had done quite a magnificent job earning back her trust. He was the one who had had the affair, and he did a wonderful job over time making amends and and listening to her pain and bringing it up himself, you know, saying, how are you doing with it? And But in the end, what she said to him was, you know, because he asked her, he asked her in my consulting room, do you forgive me? And she thought about it and she said, I forgive you 90%. And he, you know, looked at her with curiosity. And she said, I do forgive you for having the affair. I will never forgive you for sleeping with her in our bed when I was off taking care of my mother. I do not forgive you for that. And that was okay. You know, she forgave him 90% and um, they were able to move forward in, in the marriage with love and mutual respect. So there are many myths about forgiveness that I think hurt us. Yeah, I remember reading that and being so shocked by it and and really absorbing this idea that there are you you can forgive to a certain extent and it's okay if you didn't reach that other 10% like I don't forgive you fully, and this is the part where I'm not forgiving. Although I have to say, maybe I'm not as forgiving as her, because I'm not sure if I would stay married. But that's just... <laughs> <laughs> uh uh-huh. Well, <laughs> she stayed married. And um, I would also add that sometimes affairs occur in the best of marriages. And depending on the um, unfaithful, the, the person who is unfaithful depending on their commitment to um, avoid future temptations and their commitment to their spouse and their commitment to truth-telling and their ability to work hard on earning that trust and helping the, the um, hurt party to feel safe and soothed again. Um, you know, I'm I'm all for that. I am not for people bolting out of the marriage at the first infidelity. But again, you know, like you're saying, that is a very personal decision. So I'm sharing my my bias. In this case, we've mentioned the person who does apologize. Not only did he apologize, but like you said, he worked on the marriage and he demonstrated that he's committed to the marriage. He changed his behavior, so on and so forth, which is all kind of part. It's lumped into the apology. You don't just, you don't just apologize with words, but you have to take the actions to demonstrate that you are really changing whatever the misbehavior or misdeed was, right? But what? If, if an apology is never forthcoming, uh, you're the hurt party and the apology is not going to come or it was just the apology that's not an apology, period. You know, the, the, um, how does a person find peace of mind? You mentioned before that hold, holding on to the anger is never a healthy thing, but um, 
how do we do it, Mary? This anger is not healthy for me, so I think today I will let go of all my anger and obsessive thinking because it's hurting me, it's not hurting him. He's having a great day at the beach. I mean, it's not easy, but of course, that's the challenge. It's very important to understand that some people will never apologize. And the greater the harm they've done, the less likely that a heartfelt apology will ever be forthcoming. Because in order to apologize for something serious, a person needs to have a solid platform of self-worth to stand on. And from this higher vantage point, the person can look out at the bad thing that they've done. And they can apologize. They can get it because they see their mistakes as part of a much larger, more complex, more complex picture of who they are as a human being. But some people, and especially those who do serious harm, stand on a small, rickety platform of self-worth. And they're not able to get the hurt they've caused. And they're not able to listen to our feelings or to orient toward reality because to do that threatens to flip them into an identity of worthlessness or shame. And and nobody can can do that. So the non-apologizer walks on a tightrope of defensiveness above a huge canyon of low self-esteem. So one thing that's very important to know if you're the hurt party and you're going to approach, for example, your mom or your dad or a family member or someone who really seriously hurt you, it's very important to understand that the apology that, of course, you long for and you want, and I don't just mean I'm sorry, I mean the person's going to get it, and they're going to care about your feelings, and they're going to say, yes, that happened, you know, your feelings make sense. Um, It's important to understand that that apology will probably not be forthcoming. And it has nothing to do with how much that person loves you or doesn't love you. It it has to do with how much self-worth that person has, that platform of self-worth. So what matters here is if you are, you're the hurt party, and you are going to open up a conversation with someone who harmed you, speak because you need to speak, irrespective of the response that you get. Speak because speaking your own truths is the ground that you want to stand on. You want to hear the sound of your own voice saying what you really know and believe to be true. Um, I'd say don't apologize if you're doing it because you desperately need an apology because the more serious the harm, the less likely that that will be forthcoming. Not now, not ever. Wow. Heavy stuff, but so important. Wow, so powerful. Harriet, something lighter. Um, How do we teach our kids to be better at this? What are some tips you can give us to those who are parenting younger children? And as we've already established, this is a fundamental skill. Um, what, what, can you, what, what words of wisdom can you give us when we're parenting in terms of how to teach our children about saying I'm sorry and <laughs> meaning it? <laughs> well, whether you're a parent or a teacher... There are two things to keep in mind. For example, you need to model the behavior that you want them to do. So it's very important that you apologize to your children. Children have a very strong sense of justice, even very little children. They need to have their reality validated. They know when something is unfair. And they need to know that their parents have the maturity and the integrity and the courage to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And your feelings make sense. I I made a mistake. The other second thing 
what parents need to do if you want to teach your child to apologize is when they apologize, even if you've asked for it, you know, you said you apologize to your brother. Once they apologize, say, quote, thank you for the apology. I really appreciate it. Be cut with no add-on because the number one reason that kids tell me that they hate to apologize is that they're all of these add-ons. Like, you said you're sorry to your brother, but, you know, next time, maybe I won't have to ask you to apologize. And, hey, you know, you're looking down at your feet, and you don't sound like you really mean it. Now, you go to your room, and you think about it, and you come back, and you give a sincere apology. And, you know, kids tell me they want to stuff their fingers in their ears and, and run away. Now, this advice sounds very simple to just say, thank you for the apology. I really appreciate it. It's very difficult, I know, because you want to do those add-ons. And there may be need for a longer conversation, but save it. Save it. Don't go on in ways that make your kids want to stick their fingers in their ears and make, it makes them feel, what's the point? Like, why should I apologize? It's just followed by a criticism or a lecture. So those are my two pieces of advice if you want to teach children to apologize. Model the behavior, and when they apologize, even if you think their body language, tone of voice, etc., is not sincere, say, Thank you for the apology. I really appreciate it. Save the add-ons for a different conversation. I love it. I so love it. You just made me realize, you know, when you said about modeling the behavior, I, I loved I loved those two tips about kids. And you just reminded me, not just about the add-on when they apologize, but I'm thinking here, when we model the behavior ourselves, it just something went off on my head that you told me before to avoid the but and the ifs. And for some reason, I think as parents, we're very tempted to, yes, apologize if we need to apologize to our children, right? Or, but then add on all the, but I had a crazy day at work, but your sibling was crying, but, you know, all those buts, which maybe we won't do with other people, but we're so comfortable. And we, we probably do this with our spouses too, right? But I think that's so key, right? It is very key, and the truth is that it's in our most important and enduring relationships that we um, are most likely to not be our best and most mature selves. So, you know, there's some days I treat my dry cleaner better than I treat my husband Steve. Um, family relationships get very intense. They're like lightning rods that absorb stress from every other source. So it takes a lot of motivation and intention to be your best self with a partner or your children or your mother. Um, it takes motivation and intention and a real wish to uh, bring your best self to the relationship, even when the other person is being a jerk. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, um, Harriet, let's switch gears a little bit to some Jewish topics. I know you're a proud Jewish woman, and I'm curious, do you have any Jewish traditions that you either were taught at home or you adopted yourself as an adult that you feel are, you hold on to them dearly? They're very, very important to you? Anything you, you treasure? The Truth is that uh, I was raised in, I grew up in Brooklyn. I'm now a Kansan, by the way. I live in Lawrence, Kansas, and spent decades in Topeka, Kansas. And for my progressive Jewish parents, being Jewish meant um, being a Nobel Prize laureate, being a good person, making a contribution to the world, never coming home with a B plus. I remember I remember my father talking about his daughters that 
doctors when he was pushing us in a stroller. And, um, you know, me and my sister, we knew that we would get our PhDs the way other kids in the neighborhood knew they'd have to go to high school. So, and, and there was no organized, uh, they were not favorable to organized religion. And because I was growing up in Flatbush, I also just thought everybody was Jewish. And I didn't, and I, as I said, I came from a very under-ritualized family. So that's what I absorbed. And interestingly, when I moved from, you know, the coast, to Topeka, Kansas, where I went to work in the Menger Clinic with my husband, Steve, and I had my two boys, that's when I had this sort of um, consciousness raising about being Jewish, because my kids, Matt and Ben, were the only Jewish kids in their class in Topeka, often. And I would be invited in, you know, Steve and I would be invited into school around the holidays, and the teacher would say something like, um, Matt's mom is here to tell us about the Jewish, wa- the Jewish way to celebrate Christmas. I mean, that's what I heard, you know. And so... I don't know, everything changed for me. You know, my boys both got bar mitzvah, my husband, who's fluent in Hebrew and who lived in Israel. He taught at the temple there. Um, and I began to really appreciate and get in touch with the importance of, of ritual and being Jewish. But I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I just didn't get that. You know, growing up in Brooklyn, I just knew everyone was Jewish. I was Jewish. I knew my parents were doing yard work. We were all working on the, on the Sabbath, you know, the Shabbos. And <laughs> I knew that people didn't like that. And, um, but I had to move to Topeka, Kansas to get it. I think that happens often that we need to move away a little bit for, from certain things and then we start appreciating them or owning them in our own terms, I guess. And becoming a parent very often does that. It kind of triggers those feelings of, wait, what does Judaism mean to me? And, you know, what do I want to pass on to my children? It just takes a new, different meaning. That's very true. Right. Having children, in addition to being a very humbling experience, um, every children raise mistakes on everything. So if I had never had kids, I would not have given that kind of thought to what does being Jewish mean to me, you know, apart from getting an A-plus or getting a MacArthur grant or being a Nobel Prize laureate. It needs to mean something else. All right. Harry, let's do some JLP fill in the blanks. And this is something I do with all my guests. It's basically I give you an open-ended question and you answer it with the first thing that comes to mind, okay? Okay. All right. I'm Harriet Lerner and I feel most spiritual when? When I can be totally present with people and be discerning, but without judgment. Wow, I love that. That is a hard one, Harriet, to be without judgment. Ooh, if we could all practice that a little bit more in our lives, the world would be a much better place. Uh-huh. Yes, it would. My, my favorite mitzvah or one that I connect with the most is? Is? When I help people, um, when I really help people with the talents I have about relationships. Wow, I love that. Harriet, did you always know you wanted to go into this field? I knew that I was going to be a clinical psychologist before I entered kindergarten, and actually I never veered from that goal, as bizarre as it is, that's the truth. That is so rare. Was one of your parents in the field of psychology? No. No, both of my parents had high school educations, and it might have had something to do with the fact that my mother put my sister and I into therapy before the age of three, unlike other parents of the day who thought that therapy was the last resort to the mentally ill. My 
progressive Jewish mother thought that therapy was a learning experience. And we were very poor growing up in Brooklyn. But my mother had this insurance plan where for one dollar, we had Dr. Spock as our pediatrician, Dr. Benjamin Spock, and we had a therapist for a dollar a session. So my mother thought that this was going to, I don't know, make us better and smarter people. So we went, you know, I could barely talk and we went to therapy. So that probably had something to do with my career choice. My mother, my, my mother would, would have been very good friends with your mother because she still quotes Dr. Spock on me and she sent me to therapy when I was five and any question I have of my children, she tells well, did you call the therapist? (laughs) 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 Right. And by the way, you know, the research is that that, um, Jewish people are very overrepresented in therapy and interestingly underrepresented in hospitalization, but overrepresented in outpatient therapy. And I have a colleague, Monica McGoldrick, who studies ethnicity, who tells this great story about a Jewish family that was like in therapy forever. Like they were already doing really well and they kept continuing in therapy. So the team got together and this is very rare, but you know, they got together and were trying to think how to tactfully, you know, tell the family that they could stop therapy. That might be a good idea. Usually, you know, the team is getting together to help people stay in, help the family stay in therapy. So uh, Monica McGoldrick was telling me that, um, so they tell, you know, the therapist tells this family, you know, all the gains they've made, all the goals they've met, that really they have the resources to not need to come to therapy anymore. And then there's a silence in the room. And the father, who's very thoughtful, says, well, we've budgeted in for the next year, so we'll stay one more year. (laughs) And Monica, who's Irish, was saying this was like so bizarre to her because the Irish, this is to make a generalization, you know, would have to be sort of hanging by their fingernails to uh, go to a stranger like a therapist to get help. But, um, you know, that's what the father said. We budgeted in, well, stay another year. Funny. That's so funny. Yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> I keep thinking about my mother. She loves therapy. She wants us. She, she would, I, I, I do have to say, Harry, I used to love my therapist when I was a kid. I had the best time. I was probably like that family. I probably would have just stayed there in therapy for a very long time. So, you know what? Who knows? It's helpful. All right. My fondest, sweetest Jewish memory is, and I know you say you didn't have such a, you know, ritualistic upbringing, but is there anything, you know, Passover seders, or I don't know, is there something sweet, or even with the birth of your children, something sweet that you hold on to that's just something, a, a Jewish memory that you have that is sweet to you? There are bar mitzvahs. Oh. My two boys, Matt and Ben, there are bar mitzvahs. And also the Passover seders that we have now, um, that's what comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, those experiences are very, very powerful. Something I wish I had learned about Judaism growing up is? Everything. I learned nothing. Well, that's not true. That's not true because what I learned, I take it back and I take it back because what I learned about contributing and being serious about my work um, was very useful. And I actually, one thing we certainly did learn about was, you know, the Holocaust and the terrific things that happened. The horrific, did I just say terrific? The horrific things that happened to our people. And actually, also, and this is part of being Jewish for me, was a tremendous emphasis on social justice, which I have always associated with being Jewish. So when I was very young in Brooklyn, I was on picket lines. I um, was part of the civil rights movement. For me, that was being Jewish. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Many, many Jews were involved and social justice is a big one. It's a big one. And, and 
you know, what you said before about being a contributing member, somebody who really gives to society, that that you got from your family, that's a very powerful Jewish value, very, very important. And it's never too late to learn new things about our heritage, so. Exactly, exactly. And thankfully, to nowadays, with the internet and, you know, books in every language, I mean, we could gain so much knowledge that we didn't have at our fingertips when we were younger, you know. Um, so, anyway, when I give charity, tzedakah, I like to give to? That's a tough one because, of course, it changes. But I like to give to local organizations that are part of my community and that are supporting causes that I really believe in, as well as national organizations. But it's important. It's important me to be contributing to things happening in the community. Yeah, in your local, you know, it's funny that you said that because there's an order to charity giving, uh, and I was just reviewing it with one of my kids, and you first need to start with, um, ideally, with your family members if they need, and, and then your local, like you said, your local community before you expand elsewhere. I mean, everything's important, but... It's interesting that you said that you, you you really value that giving locally, and it's 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 very important. All right, finally, I'm Harriet Lerner, and today I'm most grateful for for having this interview with you. I love it, Harriet. You're so wonderful. I appreciate your time. <laughs> and are you? I so appreciate your time, and this conversation was so insightful. Everybody, the book is Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. And I encourage everybody to go out there and get it, because uh, as you heard, this is really good, deep stuff that we all need to practice and practice until we master it, because we're going to be doing it for the rest of our lives, right? <laughs> exactly. Hopefully, yes. Harriet, I can't wait to hear what more is coming from you. I'm sure there's a lot of... What are you up to these days? Now that you... Well, are you in book tour or what's happening now? I am actually doing a lot of talking about the book, a lot of keynotes and lecturing and talking about the book around the country. And of course, it's become very timely because politically, um, there have been so many public apologies for, for example, sexual harassment. That has gotten quite a bit of attention. Yeah, yeah, very, very timely. And uh, any more books you think are coming in the pipeline? Any ideas? You don't have to reveal your ideas, but tell me. Do you think there's more coming? Absolutely. Yay, I can't wait. And I hope you come back and visit me again and share about that. Oh, I will. Thank you so much, Harriet. Thank you. Thanks to Harriet Lerner for stopping by. Her latest book is Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. And she's on Twitter at Harriet Lerner. All of this and more back at JewishLatinPrincess.com. I hope everybody had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I did. I was actually getting ready for my upcoming trip to Miami. And I had a chance to really appreciate and be grateful for all the blessings in my life. And I took a peek at some of the latest reviews on iTunes. I am so truly grateful for those. Thank you so much. They mean the world to me. Stay tuned because we have a brilliant interview next week on marital intimacy. You won't want to miss that. Until then, have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the Jewish women you love. To access today's show notes, ask Yael a question, or suggest a uniquely talented Jewish woman to be featured on the show, visit JewishLatinPrincess.com.